Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, there are a few different ways you can support us. You can buy a book from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, including the title discussed in this episode, a link to which you'll find in the show notes. There, you'll also find our Year of Reading subscription, as well as Shakespeare and Company totes, apparel, mugs and other gifts, all shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You can also become a friend of Shakespeare and Company, a programme we set up to get the bookshop through this difficult year. Membership gets you access to exclusively produced content throughout 2021, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Contributors so far include Molly Crabapple, Aishan Hutchinson, Olivia Lang, Deborah Levy, Katika Nair, Clemence Poesie, Natalie Portman and George Saunders. You can find out more on friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. Finally, you can rate this podcast wherever you listen, and if you have time, leave a review. It can really help spread the word. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. You may not think you have heard of Bell and Cat, but I put money on you being familiar with their work. If we know rather than merely suspect that Russian weapons downed the MH17 flight over Ukraine, or that cluster munitions were used by the Assad regime in Syria, that's thanks to Bell and Cat. If we can name the Russian operatives that attempted to murder Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury, or some of the white supremacists who led the bloody rampage through Charlottesville, that's thanks to Bellingcat. And if we're starting to get to grips with the online currents that shaped the mind of the Christchurch mosque shooter, or that underlie the QAnon conspiracy, that, in part at least, is thanks to Bellingcat too. But it's not just Bellingcat's results that are radical, it's the methods of open source investigation that are reshaping the way of journalism, human rights advocacy, and even law work. How exactly? Listen on to find out. Bellingcat is a collective by nature, and the title of today's book, We Are Bellingcat, underlies that fact. And yet one person was the driving force behind the founding and growth of this groundbreaking organisation. That person is Elliot Higgins, and I'm thrilled to say he joins us today. Elliot, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks for having me on. One thing that struck me um, when reading the book was considering the kind of very collaborative nature of Bellingcat and considering the very sort of digital nature of Bellingcat, why did you decide to sort of tell the story of Bellingcat in the very kind of analogue, very sort of individual format of a, of a book? Well, I think we had kind of gotten to a point with Bellingcat where um, sort of an awful lot happened in the kind of prior eight years or so. And it felt like I had kind of come to a natural port point where I could kind of summarize the kind of the development of the open source community, the development of Bellingcat. And um, as I was writing it, this was just, I just started doing it just before the um, kind of big revelations that we were starting to have uh, after our initial investigation into the Scripley investigation. So there seemed to be a lot there to kind of bring together as part of the story as well. Um, so I d- just thought that, you know, considering how much we've been through, I think is uh, one way to put it, that there's mm. there's a lot that could be shared and it kind of explained to an audience. And for Bellingcat, engaging with audiences is very important with us because we don't just see as audiences as receivers of information, but mm. potential kind of collaborators in the future. So the more people who are involved and from a broader range of communities, the better it is both for Bellingcat and the whole online open source investigation community. Now, very near the beginning of the book, you talk about... Um the events of 9-11 being kind of quite formative for you and sort of drawing you into a sort of uh, an obsession with with news and trying to find out more and trying to find out what was going on behind the stories. And you also talk about the the Arab Spring as being uh, another sort of important moment in your, um, in in the development of of your methods. Um, Could you just talk a little bit about that sort of that process and how sort of you you came into into this world because your of course your background is not sort of in traditional journalism. Yeah, I mean, my previous work um, before I started blogging was just um, work in, in admin and finance roles, nothing mm-hmm. to do with investigation. It was kind of doing invoices and spreadsheets and stuff like that. But in my spare time, I think thanks to kind of my my teenage years were bookended by the kind of first invasion of Iraq and then 9-11 and the mm-hmm. 2003 invasion of Iraq. That gave me a real keen interest in kind of um, kind of global events with a particular perspective on kind of the US reaction to stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, they were going around the Middle East, you know, blowing up whichever enemy they decided they were going to blow up next. And, um, you know, I, I kind of grew, grew up reading, you know, kind of John Pilger and Noam Chomsky mm-hmm. and Robert Fisk and, 
people who unfortunately nowadays aren't my <laughs> they seem to be my fans um but um that was kind of the kind of that leftist kind of literature was, was kind of what i was reading when i was growing up especially in the context of, kind of u.s foreign policy mm-hmm. then in 2010 when the kind of events of the arab, arab spring started to unfold um you know i was spending uh you know some you would call this very very online spending a lot of time on the internet mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of this information about this conflict these conflicts were actually appearing and it was really mostly being ignored by the mainstream media. It was more something that was being kind of de- debated in online form- forums and comment sections. And I was part of those kind of debates and, you know, arguments and various battles happening online. Um, but I, I, I saw more and more people questioning the authenticity of these videos. And it's, mm-hmm. it's fair to ask questions about these things. But most people did that because they thought there wasn't an answer and they could use it as a way to kind of dismiss, you know, the latest video of an atrocity coming mm-hmm. from Libya or Syria or wherever it may be. So I kind of asked myself the question of actually, can I actually figure out if these videos are showing what they claim to show? Mm-hmm. And I was looking at videos from Libya in early 2011 and kind of arguing about them on internet forums. And that's when I realized you could actually look at satellite imagery of the same areas these videos were claimed to be filmed in and start looking at the details in the satellite imagery, like the position of buildings, major landmarks, and comparing that to what's visible in the video. And then using that kind of the details in the videos and the details in the satellite imagery of the same location to confirm they actually were filmed where they claim to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a process, I think, you know, is a core kind of uh, methodology that we use now in um, open source investigation called geolocation, confirming where image was captured. Um, but that kind of set me off on my kind of journey in 2011, where I kind of, you know, was on the Guardian Middle East live blog arguing with people about these videos and they're going, aha, mm-hmm. but I can show you exactly where they're filmed. And um, that then started building me a bit, little bit of a reputation there. And just slowly over time between that and being on social media, talking about this stuff, and then eventually starting a blog in 2012, that's um, how I kind of built an audience around um, just the whole concept of doing an online open source investigation. And what's what's very unusual about that is, this whole field is very much driven by um, keen amateurs or people mm-hmm. who are working in things like human rights or NGOs, but did this as kind of like a side job to what they were doing, um, you know, just as, as their hobby, but it was still related to their work. And that meant I attracted kind of the attention of people from a whole range of different fields, from kind of conflict analysis to NGOs, journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, that kind of was the community that formed around open source investigation. Mm. One thing you say, um, particularly, I think, at the beginning of the Arab Spring, was that you had uh, no sort of personal connection um, to the events there. And in a way, the events were so sort of turbulent and so fast moving. It wasn't sort of uh, you didn't find yourself necessarily having a sort of a partisan view. Do you think there was something in that sort of initial sort of lack of a personal connection that gave you a kind of an investigative edge in a way? I think part of it is that the people who are kind of often kind of arguing over these videos had a very strong position that was based off their personal politics. So you had mm-hmm. lots of people who, because of the build-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the dodgy dossier and all the stuff that mm-hmm. happened around that, were very, um, you know, didn't trust the government, especially when it came to the Middle East and countries that had oils. So a lot of them saw it through the kind of uh, lens of what happened with that experience. And everything they saw was just a repeat of that same experience. So when they were discussing these kind of, you know, videos and claims and allegations, they were basically saying it can't be true because it's just part of, you know, these usual games that the US and the UK are mm-hmm. playing to steal oil. They weren't actually really interested in the evidence. They were really interested in just reinforcing their point. And then you have people on the other side who were like, oh, no, you know, Assad or Gaddafi or whoever it may be is you know the most terrible person in the world. And therefore, all these videos must be true. But no one was actually bothering to say, OK, actually, what is true and what isn't? Because I think it's important to build your opinions on these things on provable evidence, not just mm-hmm. stuff that you think reinforces what you already believe. And that's something we see, you know, now more and more communities that are really focused on, you know, being right and, you know, having the same opinions of the people around them and, you know, having those opinions reinforced rather than actually looking at the evidence and, you know, saying, okay, this is what we know based off the evidence rather than we know this because I think the evidence is showing us this. Mm -hmm. And was also um, the, there are certain kind of competitive edge to it too when you when you write about the sort of the the message boards and the sort of the the attempt to sort of geolocate a video for example uh, it strikes me that there was this sort of 
I, I hesitate to use the, the word gamification because it makes it sound a little bit like it's sort of trivializing the, the subject. And I don't mean to do that at all. But it's struck me because you also mentioned at a time that you sort of had a background in uh, playing video games online as well. And it seemed to me almost sort of in the early days that one of the things that sort of drove you and some of the other people in the field was a certain sort of, yeah, a certain sort of ed- edge of kind of a friendly competition of being able to sort of, uh, yeah, to, to geolocate a video before before somebody else, for example. It, it was sometimes feeling like, you know, being the first person to solve that particular puzzle. And that puzzle uh-huh. might be, what is this bomb? Or, you know, where was this filmed? Um, and as there kind of a community grew around that online, I think one thing is, it, although it's competitive, it wasn't in a kind of negative way. We just kind sure. of, uh, you know, like to have the kudos of being the first one to do it. But when someone else did it, it meant that, you know, often it was something you were interested in anyway. So if they did it, before you did then you knew the thing you wanted to know sooner so it wasn't you know with less effort so it wasn't a bad thing and again it goes back to this kind of community idea where if, you know we now have around the work of banning cat and the open source uh, community you know thousands of people are engaged in this in different ways and at different levels from kind of just you know giving their opinion on something to you know real in-depth investigators but they're all part of a kind of community that we really draw on for you know a lot of the kind of um, gathering of that evidence and the mm-hmm. kind of verification of this work and because open source evidence is public that you can go and actually double check stuff yourself so if someone's making a claim about a video you can go and double check that claim because if they've done the analysis in the correct way it should be transparent enough that it can be easily checked um, and you see that kind of more and more happening on places like uh, Twitter at the moment where you'll have, uh, you know, at the moment we've got the sedition hunters, they call themselves looking for the identities of people from the um, January 6th violence in Washington, D.C. Mm. You have a community that's formed around the um, Europol Tracing Objects Stop Child Abuse campaign, identifying objects from abuse imagery that Europol's been share- sharing. So these communities emerge and they interact with each other. But in parallel to that, you've also seen these kind of more conspiracy focused communities uh, mm. emerging at the same time kind of being brought together online, um, you know, and, you know, there's reasons for that happening. You know, people are looking for alternatives to um, sources of authority that they've lost trust in. And then they search for that online and they find people who are, you know, agreeing with them that, yes, you shouldn't trust these people and this is why you shouldn't trust them. And some of those people are saying, well, you should be, you know, have good reasons to say that. But within those communities, you also have people who tend to have more kind of extreme and radical ideas like, you know, mm-hmm. coronavirus, you know, vaccines are going to you know, have Bill Gates microchips in them and stuff like that. But so you have this kind of form of online radicalization going on through these kind of counterfactual communities, as I describe them in the book, mm-hmm. alongside the development of this kind of online open source investigation community that's very much based on you know, analyzing the evidence. I suppose the thing that sort of that sets the open source community apart from the, the counterfactual community is this sort of... Um, the openness to being questioned to sort of um, one of the things I think is really striking about the, the, the Bellingcat method is this, you know, you, you seem to sort of uh, want people to uh, engage with your evidence. You want people to try and sort of prove it wrong in a sense, because in that way, it's sort of a bit like, I suppose, like the scientific method of sort of falsification that is sort of, it's only, um, yeah, it's, it's only by being sort of open to, to falsification that the, the the sort of the the weight and the truth of a fact can be can be established yeah and our work is about verifying this stuff so if you know we feel something has been verified and there is a genuine reason that it hasn't been we want to know what that is because that's a learning experience we'll feed into our future work because we don't want to make incorrect statements we don't want to do bad analysis of the evidence and this is why you know now often we're finding ourselves more and more engaged with legal cases because we Mm -hmm. have had that kind of thoroughness with the work that we're doing and we've been approached by organizations who are working on justice and accountability um asking us how this kind of online you know open source evidence can be used in a courtroom environment and that's you know i mean we've got the likes of the international criminal court coming to us asking that question and that's quite an unusual position to be in when you've started Mm -hmm. something to basically win arguments on the internet and now the icc (laughs) is wondering how you do it um so when i'm um you know a lot of our work now is focused on this kind of justice and accountability stuff and if you look at kind of you know the parallel community and that kind of counterfactual communities that have emerged they don't really you know they they aren't in that position they aren't going to have what they're saying you know challenging the courtroom unless they you know libel someone in most cases (laughs) but whilst we're expecting this stuff will be used you know potentially in courtrooms in the future so when we're doing the analysis and the collection of this evidence 
um, we have to do it in a kind of increasingly far away. And that's you know a big part of what we're doing at the moment uh, at Bellingcat and in the future is thinking how this evidence can be used because we think it's extremely valuable. You look at mm. something like the conflict in Syria, that's produced you know literally a video, millions of videos online. And all these videos can disappear quite easily. You know, YouTube can, can take down a website and, you know, or a channel and all those videos are deleted. In fact, just recently, only today, we had uh, the US shut down a number of uh, Iranian um, linked uh, media channels online. You know, PressTV.com got shut down, mm-hmm. as did a number of others. Some of those actually host a lot of really valuable videos from the conflict in Yemen that we've been using to investigate things like Saudi airstrikes and war crimes. And they've just been completely deleted now, you know, in a blink of an eye because the US, you know, didn't want these sites online anymore. Yet researchers have lost a huge amount of evidence. Mm-hmm. So now it's not just about discovering this stuff. It's, okay, once we've discovered it, how do we, you know, archive that in a way that makes it useful evidence for the future because it's not as simple as just downloading a video and then in five years time being in court saying oh i downloaded a video five years ago (laughs) it's about saying okay how do we make this a kind of uh, create a chain of custody for this kind of digital evidence and that's stuff that's not really been done before in this way i mean there has been you know forensic work done with computers and preserving online evidence but the scale of the problem now is that you're not talking about one video here or there you can be talking several hundred videos a day Mm -hmm. that need to be copied archived and then turned into accessible data so a lot of the work that we're doing is very much focused on that meanwhile the kind of counterfactual communities are more interested in kind of internet slap fights and stuff with whoever they have decided is you know the you know the worst person in the world this week and mm-hmm. you even though the two communities in a way have the same motivation which is finding the truth we've gone about it in very different ways i think it's fair to say yeah i think one thing um which we we should probably do at this point actually is i realize we've mentioned the term uh, open source investigation a few times and i i'm conscious of the fact that some of our listeners this might be the first time that they are coming into contact with um with this as a concept um would you be able to give us just like a a sort of a, a capsule uh summary of what uh open source investigation means to you Sure. So uh, open source investigation is something that's been around for a very long time. Um, you know, it, it's been, you know, in World War Two, people were checking German newspapers for reports of, you know, battles and, you know, boats being sunk and stuff like that, collating that evidence and then turning it into intelligence reports. So often open source investigation was in the context of um, intelligence products that were being produced you know, by spy agencies. Mm-hmm. What changed um, in 2007 is Apple released the iPhone and we had this mm-hmm. huge uptake in smartphone technology. And that led to social media platforms being created where people were using these smartphones to share every single aspect of that life. Alongside that, you had um, Google producing things like Google Street View, Google uh, Earth and Maps, and making satellite imagery available. So all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, we had a massive amount of information both from sources on the ground, you know, people with smartphones taking photographs from a whole range of incidents, and this, these other sources like Street View and satellite imagery, which you could use to verify this evidence that was being kind of collected on the ground. And this really started to emerge in the most significant way during the Arab Spring, where, you know, the, the citizens of the ground were filming what was happening in Egypt and in Tahrir Square. They were filming what was happening in towns across Syria and, you know, the during Libya. And that's where I think the first kind of online community came together and started focusing on, you know, this digital information mm-hmm. that was being shared. And I ended up being always stumbling into doing this. And um, that that's kind of, you know, was the beginnings of this net, what we now call online open source investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has kind of just grown and grown and turned from something that was being done to amateurs, which is now something being considered, you know, in, in courts and uh, by police and is a big part of journalism and a whole range of different fields. One thing that's very kind of striking in a way is that sort of that there was the space for this online community to develop or indeed the need for it, because one thing that comes across in the book is particularly at the beginning of uh, this sort of, let's say, new wave of open source investigation was that sort of traditional intelligence um, gatherers or you know agencies and traditional journalists seemed to, to almost look upon this kind of the material that you work with it with a certain disdain, in fact. And and that just seems like such an odd thing that sort of there's all of this evidence out there, but because of the something about the nature of the evidence, whether it's I don't know whether it's because they 
don't have to sort of to dig it up because it doesn't come from a sort of a secret source seem to be ignored. There's a there's a strange paradox there, it seems. Yeah, I, I think um, in particular with the media, they'd been burnt by some previous examples. For example, in the early days of the conflict in Syria um, in 2010, there was a blogger called Gay Girl in Damascus who um, you know, claimed to be blogging from um, Syria. And it turned out to be a white guy in America who was doing the blog, right. but it was widely cited in a lot of mainstream press. So they kind of just took it at face value that this was who this person claimed to be. And it, it ended up it wasn't. It was very embarrassing because this person was making various claims about what was happening in the conflict in Syria that just turned out to be basically the fantasies of some guy in America. Yeah. Who you know wanted to do a blog, um, so I think that put them off this kind of new kind of form of information quite a bit. And even when videos were being shared online, it was very difficult to say is this actually where they claim it is. And more mm-hmm. and more, they had no kind of tools to verify this information. And that's kind of what I kind of figured out, you know, by trying to win in arguments on the internet, <laughs> but that you could actually verify this stuff. And then that just started being noticed more and more by journalists and people working at NGOs. And they started applying that to the, you know, their way they kind of analyze videos themselves. And because, you know, just me as a kind of some blogger had started finding all these really interesting videos from Syria, like the first videos of cluster bombs and barrel bombs and, uh, you know, even chemical weapons and lots of details that other people weren't finding. I started kind of becoming the go-to place to find out the real stuff from Syria. You had, you saw what was being reported in the news, but if you wanted to know what was going on the ground day to day, you could go to my blog and see the kind of videos I was finding and, you know, my kind of analysis of what those videos were showing. But I didn't know, you know, the difference between one bomb or another. I had to use online sources mm-hmm. to teach myself about all these different weapons and learn how to identify, you know, a particular kind of bomb from just a fragment of a tail fin. But mm-hmm. because of the amount of information available online about those kind of things, it is possible to actually teach yourself that stuff. Um, but it was something I was kind of doing every evening and during the day, you know, going online, finding these videos and then trying to figure out what I was actually seeing in them. Mm-hmm. But I kind of trained myself to do that over a period of, uh, you know, well, I guess continually since 2011. Uh, so trained yourself to do it by obviously sort of developing your knowledge of, for example, um, weaponry and things like that, but also alongside that building the uh, the, the community as well, because I, I, I wonder if part of the reason uh traditional journalists and traditional intelligence agencies um had difficulty kind of engaging with this material is the sort of the number of person hours perhaps required to to sort of to establish these facts and also the kind of the the disparate knowledge that perhaps a one person working alone wouldn't necessarily have the reflex to um for example think of the piece of software which a photographer uses to analyze what time of day it is or something like that but when you've got a kind of a community of several hundred or several thousand people that you could sort of tap into for for very specific expertise suddenly this material which perhaps you don't know how to find the sort of the relevance in it alone suddenly sort of working together you can sort of yeah you can develop kind of a theory a sort of a practice around it yeah, and I think in kind of traditional newsrooms, because you have this kind of culture of exclusivism scoops, you aren't going to go mm-hmm. on Twitter with a video you found and start just asking everyone, hey, does anyone know what this is? Right. And that's kind of in a way gave me an advantage, because if I didn't know some- what something was and it seemed interesting... I should just share it on social media and then people would jump in. And over time, I kind of built a following that were kind of arms and munitions experts. So they would see that on Twitter and actually give a good answer and link to mm-hmm. good sources. And I'd learn from that. So eventually I was kind of learning, you know, like every single bomb that was kind of recovered, you know, unexploded from the conflict in Syria. I was learning to identify every single one of those thanks to these kind of discussions and resources that were available online. And something we do a lot now, um, now we're kind of, you know, we've grown from a kind of blog to now like a we're a Dutch NGO at the moment. We've got 22 staff members and um, we've moved from having lots of volunteers to kind of more and more staff members. We do more collaborative work. So we'll kind mm-hmm. of now we've got more of a reputation among the media and the NGOs. We'll, you know, we might be working on a topic. For example, we've been looking recently on the border pushbacks by Frontex in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And we did that as a collaborative pro- project with a Japanese TV channel, Spiegel in Germany. Germany. Um, we worked with a small NGO called Lighthouse Reports and others to mm-hmm. collaborate on this investigation. 
and use our strengths and our kind of the audiences that we have, which are all very different, to kind of um, you know research this together, share information, but then publish our own kind of style of reporting at the end of it, our style of report. So you know Spiegel did their kind of German print publication. We had Japanese TV do something. We put our own report in Bellingcat that was more based off the you know analyzing the kind of ana- analytical process in a sense. Mm-hmm. And because we had that, when it actually came to the impact of it, it wasn't just kind of coming from one direction. The pressure of what we were reporting wasn't just coming from one organization. It was coming from a whole range of organizations, mm. from the media to advocacy and accountability-focused organizations. And that led to you know the EU taking this very seriously and taking our research very seriously. So th- this idea of kind of collaboration is kind of in the very fiber of what Bellingcat is, from kind of just sharing stuff on Twitter for, to get people's opinions to proactively seeking out um, partnerships and collaborative uh, projects with uh, more established organizations. Mm. One thing that seems um, very important to the, the sort of the your approach to the um, the evidence you find online as well was that sort of, and I think you write at one moment something like, what people mean to show is not, not all that they are revealing. And so sort of one of the things that is really, really striking when... Um, for example, I think particularly uh, in the, um, the the investigation into the downing of um, of MH17 is the sort of the way that sort of all the, this different type of evidence was brought in. And it was something which it wasn't sort of somebody who was interested in sort of military movements filming the, you know, the, the movement of this book missile and putting it online and just sort of it wasn't as simple as that, but it was sort of you know, something in the background of a social media post and and things like that. And there just seems to be this sort of, um, yeah, the sort of the, the, the way that sort of humanity, particularly at this time, is sort of revealing so much about itself and more than we have any sort of sense of of, uh, of what we're giving away. That seems to be the kind of the grist to the, the Bellingcat mill in a way. And people really will film such a huge range of things. And sometimes it's, you know, stuff that's very relevant to what you're looking for. Um, so like with MH17, we obviously had photographs and videos people took, just ordinary citizens who took photographs of this missile launch on this low load on July 17th in Ukraine, um, which we then used to track this missile launcher. But one of the, for example, there's a, a photograph that was taken in a petrol station somewhere in um, eastern Ukraine. We had a rough idea mm-hmm. where it was, but what actually allowed us to confirm 100% was something someone else had filmed a few years earlier where they have a hobby where they drive around the streets of Ukraine with their dashboard camera on and then upload the video onto YouTube. And by discovering that video, it gave us a ground view of exactly the same location that we could confirm Mm -hmm. was 100% this place we thought it was. But this was just because someone had decided to do something as a hobby that, you know, they had no intention that it would ever be used for the purpose that it ended up being using, especially not in the context of an airliner being shot down. But because people are sharing so much information all the time, you often, in a sense, you're looking for the kind of footprints or the echoes of an incident that's happened online and those kind of digital traces of it, identifying those digital traces and then seeing how they all relate to each other and where they provide Mm -hmm. verification. So, for example, once we had that photograph and we knew where it was filmed, we could use the shadows in that photograph to actually calculate the approximate time of day. We searched through local uh, kind of internet forums and social media pages for that area, and we found people at the time the missile launcher was traveling through the town talking about seeing a missile launcher traveling through the town. So completely independently of the photograph, we then had another uh, source for the location and the time that it was spotted. And so what you start doing is you start with a kind of skeleton of what the information you have, which at that point were the photographs and videos of this missile launcher on a route. We then figured out where they were by geolocation. We got the approximate time of day by examining things like the shadows and then found more information from different sources about with sightings of it. And now with the court case that's happening on MH17 in the Netherlands at the moment, we have that information alongside um, intercepted phone calls where we have the separatists discussing where this missile launcher is going. It's completely consistent mm-hmm. with all the other information we've previously gathered because it was all this kind of digital imprint of this kind of moment in time that we discovered and we've analysed. And that's now matching up to the additional evidence that's coming out during this trial. Um, so, I mean, it, it, there's so many ways we've investigated stuff, you know, using publicly available information. And it's often, you know, the best information is just the stuff people are choosing to share about themselves rather than something that's been shared by someone else. Mm-hmm. 
Is there a danger um, that sort of uh, when people sort of cotton onto that, like are we in a kind of golden age of sort of open source investigation where for the last, let's say, you know, since the invention of social media, so sort of 10, 15 years, people were sort of in the kind of wild west, they were quite naive and didn't quite realise what they what they were sharing and and how it might be used. And now, I mean, I think, you know, you do say in the book that, for example, I think Russian soldiers have been banned from posting about their location on social media at the moment. Like, is there a sense that your uh, your job will be made harder because of people are cottoning on to what you guys are doing? Or is it more the case of sort of there's just so much of this stuff out there that even if certain limitations are placed on certain types of people, you'll be able to kind of fill in the gaps from uh, from people who are perhaps less directly implicated in in what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that's an element of it. Another part of it is that, you know, whilst we've kind of done a lot of Russia on Russia and the Russian state has reacted to that, first by passing a law to make it illegal to, for soldiers to share any information about their military service online. Um, mm-hmm. more, most recently, they've passed another law to make it more difficult to access leaked data in Russia, which is something we used a lot in the uh, Skripal and Ivani investigations we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, if you we've kind of done work in you know other parts of the world where there hasn't really been open source investigation being done in the same way. And the governments there kind of react to that in like they clearly don't know what we're able to do. <laughs> because, for example, <laughs> um, there was a video from Cameroon that was really horrific. It was mm-hmm. being shared on social media um, that showed two women and two children, very young children, marched off the road and executed by soldiers. And we started looking mm-hmm. into this with Amnesty and the BBC and some other people. And we soon had a location, some details. And the Cameroonian government responded to our initial investigation uh, by giving a press conference where they showed the video with the words fake news emblazoned underneath it, where they right. said how this couldn't possibly be in Cameroon. They weren't Cameroonian soldiers. The uniforms were wrong. They Everything it showed, it definitely wasn't in Cameroon. And a year later, those same soldiers were put on trial and convicted for those murders because of the work we did, uh, which obviously undermined the Cameroon government's initial claim of it being fake news. But because, again, we're working with evidence and we're thinking about how this can be used in a courtroom environment, you know, we were prepared for that. And the Cameroon government wasn't prepared for it because they probably had never heard of open source investigation until we started doing it to them. So they pro- probably thought, oh, this is just some other bunch of troublemakers, you know, saying this video is... Uh, you know, we can just say it's fake news and get away with it. But we've seen it happening again in other areas. We've done work on the uh, T-Ray situation in Ethiopia and did some analysis of a video showing executions. And uh, the government there again said, no, this is, you know, these videos are fake, blah, 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 as they usually do. And we've just found more and more evidence that shows, you know, exactly where these videos are filmed, the soldiers involved in the videos, like really detailed information that, again, makes it harder for them to reject it. But we see this every time we go into a new area, you'll have some local government or official you know diet deny everything like they can kind of get away with it not really realizing what we can do you say um at a moment that uh, bellingcat doesn't have an agenda but it does have um a credo that evidence exists and falsehood exists and people still care about the difference bellingcat may not have an agenda but it does seem to me that there is a kind of um a moral drive you do you, you work with uh, human rights agencies you work with um sort of with with legal teams and things like that was there sort of a moment for you where it went from this sort of maybe the the detachment you felt at the um beginning of the arab spring to this point where you you really felt that you were sort of if this is the case that you were doing something doing something good if you see what i mean it's it's kind of um evolved over time because you know when I started doing this I was just I was just like some blogger no one should have listened to me you know I was just some guy and I just had to build that reputation up but as I kind of built that I got more opportunities to meet people who worked in different fields one of the most significant ones early on was in 2013 I was invited by a group called uh, the Tactical Technology Collective in uh, Berlin to a uh, summer camp they were running uh, in Italy. And uh, they had, I think, about 100 kind of activists and human rights people and people, you know, who are real frontline activists in countries where there was kind of real violence, some of the countries I've been kind of blogging about as well. And um, I kind of felt, you know, I'm just some blogger, blogger and these guys are like doing really amazing stuff. But they asked me to present some of my work that I'd been doing using open source stuff. 
And uh, they were really blown away about about the possibilities of it. And they started talking to me about how, oh, I could use this in my work work in this way and how do you think I could do this and that's kind of realized when I really first realized there was like a quite big kind of component of how beneficial that could be for these kind of people that you know this isn't just about you know bringing arguments on the internet or you know finding interesting things through a blog Um, and then that kind of drew me more and more into the kind of human rights community in particular Um, then as uh, kind of Bellingcat you know our first big story was MH17 and very early on in that in I think it was September 2014 the joint investigation team the criminal investigation actually flew over to the UK and interviewed me as a witness and asked me to go through all our work on Bellingcat line by line and step by step Um, and kind of after that I went back to the kind of small team we had of volunteers who'd kind of gathered around MH17 and I said well obviously they're they seem to be taking our work seriously so why don't we kind of come together and work on it more and really since 2014 onwards um, because I think a lot of our work on MH17 you know has become very high profile we've had a criminal investigation that has kind of drawn on that work and confirmed it was correct there's been a increasing interest in the accountability community and the value of this and we you know if we're doing this work we want to see if there's a positive impact from it i mean i, I want to be doing more mm-hmm. than just putting stuff on a website and you know waving goodbye to it i want to see if there's somewhere we can take that further and because we are kind of approached by so many organizations who are saying how can we use this in our own work um and mm-hmm. i i think it's so valuable for such a whole range of different fields to use this open source uh, material i think that's certainly drawn us towards uh kind of justice and accountability as being an outcome of this kind of work and in one sense i mean really you're taking the videos from people who've you know risked their lives on the ground often over you know for days mm-hmm. or weeks or even years to collect these videos to share them because they want someone to take notice and they're to be accountability for what's happening and in one sense Bellingcat has become the kind of uh, I guess interface between the person on the ground who's capturing these videos and the accountability that they seek and you know by doing that ourselves and working with other organizations and teaching other organizations to do that it means there's more chance of there being accountability on a whole range of topics from across the world in the future. Mm-hmm. On that subject of being um, accountable one of the things that sort of you know, I guess we we often people often think about the internet. It's it's a very sort of white male dominated arena. Like, I mean, I know people who've worked on projects on Wikipedia, for example, and they realise that sort of a huge percentage of the articles are written by and kind of for sort of white men of a certain profile, and it really skewed the amount of sort of attention given to to, to one topic over another. And one thing that you you talk about is in the kind of the the recruitment uh, process for Bellingcat as you started expanding as an organization, that you were very conscious about sort of having a diverse team. Um, and I'm curious to know, is that something since the sort of the team has grown and with this sort of this emphasis on diversity, sort of bringing in uh, more women and people of color to the sort of the open source community, have you noticed the sort of the 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 direction of investigations has changed slightly uh, compared to, to how it was before, or perhaps the the subject matter that is addressed is taken in directions that perhaps you weren't expecting it to. Well, I mean, it's, it's a hard one to answer because so often, um, you know, especially since 2011 until I would say 2018, the growth of the community at large was kind of very much focused on what were the kind of biggest events happening that were producing the most open source mm-hmm. evidence. And that was mainly the Arab Spring and particularly the conflict in Syria, then MH17 and Russia's involvement in Ukraine. And then when Russia bombed Syria, it was those two communities kind of came together. Um, but what I am seeing more and more is as more organizations are picking up uh, on the usefulness of online open source investigation, you are seeing more diversity than I think you may have seen otherwise in other fields as they were growing. Because there is, it, you, you mm-hmm. do see kind of a lot of um, you know women taking the lead in this kind of work. Um, I think still think there could be a lot of diversity because even though be, because of the focus on kind of Russia and the Arabic speaking countries. Um, that is still very much where most of the open source investors caters are coming from. They're coming European, US, kind of Russian speaking backgrounds and Arabic speaking backgrounds. And I still think there's work there to be done to kind of expand it into different parts of the world. And that's something we're doing. We're working more at the moment, for example, on projects in Latin America, um, you know, 
because a big part of actually the language the the barriers between reaching new areas isn't that we can't connect people is that we don't speak the same language and google translate Mm. can only take you so far so people often say why aren't you doing more on china because we don't have many chinese open source speaking open source investigators Mm. and that actually limits a lot of what you can do but again by training more and more people with those skills it increases the chances that there will be a group that forms out in a kind of new language area that will break open these kind of whole uh, kind of uh, areas of exploration and um yeah i'm hoping we'll see a lot more of that in the future yeah and yet at the same time one thing that struck me when reading the book was was it like i'm not sure oh, I, i'm not sure I, I know for a fact that i would not be brave enough to take on some of the cases that you have taken and i say brave in sort of in two respects firstly to just to watch a lot of the harrowing material that you you have to see when you are investigating, for example, um, the the what took place in Cameroon or or the the downing of MH17, where there were sort of obviously you know pictures of of body parts and and things like that, but also the the fact that you have sort of you know upset quite a lot of people who have demonstrated or have been demonstrated through your own investigations that they will go after people who upset them. You know, could you ever have imagined of being condemned by the Russian government? And I'm just really curious to know how you have sort of handled it psychologically. Yeah, so, um, I mean, there are two aspects to the work. I mean, there is obviously a lot of um, imagery we see that is very unpleasant in the work we're doing. And um, dealing with that kind of uh, imagery is something that's actually quite a big focus of kind of the health considerations we have when we're working. We're like in the middle of an internal consultancy at the moment or an external consultancy about vicarious trauma and the risk to our staff. And we create policies around that because there have been other kind of organizations who've worked on this material where they haven't kind of handled that material very well. And that leads to Mm -hmm. kind of lots of drinking and drug taking and other things happening in the workplace that you want to avoid. So you want to look after your staff members. And I've worked on this material a lot and, discuss this issue a lot with my staff and other people and it does affect people in very different ways and it's very important to be aware of that i mean alongside that now we've got this kind of um uh, the reaction of russia to our work and and the, the funny thing is i've been using the internet for like 35 years now i think since 1995 i got the math right mm-hmm. no i got the right you know 20 yeah it's been 26 years rather um yeah. i've been using the internet and I am used to how people are horrible to each other on the internet. That is like mm. fine with me. What's really weird is how often the way Russia reacts to our work is basically just like a continuation of online trolling. It's, I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's literally they nick ideas off the internet to kind of attack us with. Um, so even when they're kind of attacking our work, half the time it seems like they've nicked ideas of trolls off the internet and are just repeating it. So it's like, it's kind of just bizarre. But as, as we've moved more and more into the work of um, the Russian security services and assassinations in uh, Europe and in uh, Russia, that certainly got a lot more nerve-wracking because the more we learn about how they operate, the more widespread we understand this is. It's very easy mm-hmm. to think that things like the Scripple poisoning or the Navani poisoning are kind of rare, unusual one-off events, but they're not at all. They're very common. I mean, we've now published. I think we're on to. I think we're on to like eight or nine assassinations we've published about, and we've got like a backlog of assassinations we've still got to work through. I mean, it, it's that situation where there is so much of this happening that we, you know, we can barely keep up with the assassinations that we've. Uh, we've discovered and you, you learn about how they do it like you know initially when Navalny was poisoned they that his uh, colleagues managed to grab the contents of his hotel room and they discovered there was uh Novichok on uh, the water bottles so that immediately put mm-hmm. me off having water in any of the hotel rooms I was staying in but then when we actually did right. the investigation and we discovered it was um put on his underpants and he must have just transferred it somehow. And that really put me off staying in hotels. I mean, I'm going to have to carry my underpants around with me and my laptop back now whenever I go on the uh, kind of away anywhere. But it, it, it just makes you a lot more nervous. I mean, I, I was um, at a hotel in uh, the Netherlands and I've been staying there quite a bit over the years. And I had a knock on the door one evening and uh, the door opened and um, it was the management it, or someone in a suit with a management um, badge on. I said, oh, thank you for staying at this hotel so much. We'd like to set you this token of our appreciation. And he handed over a bag with like these cookies and uh, sweets in. I was like, oh, wow, that's really nice. Uh-huh. 
But when I closed the door, I thought that could have literally been anyone with uh, who just picked up a badge and you know was in disguise. You know, disguise that this, sure. these cookies could be poison cookies. And then I started like looking at my pupils to make sure I hadn't been dilated suddenly, or I had, you know, start getting really <laughs> nervous. I'm feeling a bit warm now. Is that just me imagining something, or am I actually ill? And that you know. It, and then I, you know, chucked them in the bin. But the next day when I went downstairs, I was thinking about these possible poison cookies. But then the uh, duty manager came over to me and said, oh, we hope you enjoyed the cookies we gave you uh, yesterday. I was like, oh, I can't believe I threw all those cookies away. They were really nice looking. <laughs> I mean, is it um, is it wishful thinking in a way to sort of think that perhaps because of the sort of the community nature of Bellingcat, the Bellingcat is kind of like a hydra. Like if you sort of, if you cut off the head, more heads will sprout. So there's no point going after you, for example, as the founder. Or do you think the kind of the the way the Russian state operated so sort of sort of petty and <laughs> in that way that it's sort of, that that wouldn't be a sort of a tactical consideration. It would be more about sort of enacting some sort of revenge well i mean we try to be as high profile as possible so you know if we do you know fall off a balcony the first suspicion would be you know rushes behind it but at at the same time it's um it's kind of a weird situation to be in with russia because i know from two I, i know a lot of people who now who work at a whole range of different bodies like the kind of un and the opcw and the ohchr and they interact with russians on a regular basis and often they now talk about Bellingcat's work because our work has kind of impacted mm-hmm. what they're doing and i've been told by multiple people that when russia brings up Bellingcat, they are very adamant that we're definitely part of the intelligence services like they genuinely mm-hmm. believe that and I, I read a report by a, one news organization who went to Moscow University to listen to the next generation of Russian bureaucrats being trained. And they had a former FSB guy there talking about Bellingcat and saying that how we were part of the British state used to spread disinformation. And they were teaching this uh-huh. to the next wave of bureaucrats. So I think the perception of what Bellingcat is to the Russian authorities is like a complete kind of hallucination. It's like a complete, like imaginary figure that we're some sort of, <laughs> you know, intelligence operation that's kind of so amazingly clever. And, you know, but really we're nothing like that. But the fact they seem to genuinely believe that, I mean, it's it's hard to know what their kind of calculations are when they they think you're actually a real spy agency. Are they going to not go after us because mm-hmm. they think we're MI5 or MI6 or the CIA? So it's it's kind of like a really kind of odd situation to be in. It's also a bit nerve wracking because when we report on all these murders and assassinations and there's no kind of big movement from the governments that are supposedly behind us, then you do wonder, does Russia see that and say, oh, they must not really care about it that much anyway if they're getting their kind of proxy to publish about it and then do nothing about it. Yeah. So does that mean they're going to do more assassinations now because they think the governments are okay with it so yeah it, it, it's a bit of a uh, mystery to us but it's a kind of uh yeah strange behavior from them it's almost as if they the sort of the the concept of sort of the, the sheer openness of what you do is sort of almost something which uh because of the kind of the i guess the culture of secrecy and sort of russian politics and the russian secret services you know it's putin as the kind of the ex-kgb guy that it's almost like they can't compute something that could exist so openly and work sort of so completely uh sort of in the in the light that it sort of it has to be funded by yeah by mi6 or whatever yeah and i think there's a kind of perception that why would someone write about russia unless they had some kind of backer behind it and i think you often see in the way they kind of set up their own kind of organizations and operations that it's often them back, backing some kind of group who is, you know, putting out disinformation about MH17. I think they assume that's just what everyone else is doing. So when they look at Bellingcat, they just say, see that as a version of what they're doing, you know, with their kind of disinformation. They don't see it um, kind of in, you know, a, a, as an authentic organisation. And I, I, that does challenge them, I think, a bit when it comes to... Uh, our work being used as evidence in different things. Like we've seen Mm -hmm. our work being presented, for example, at the MH17 trial. Um, Our work was cited in a report from the UN on Yemen, which Russia actually blocked the publication of, apparently because we were mentioned in the report and they didn't want us to get that kind of credit at the UN. Um, So it's, yeah, it's really um, just for us. It's constant kind of pressure from Russia where, 
they're lying about us, they're putting disinformation about us. I mean, we've gone from kind of amateurs who don't know anything to kind of a secret kind of spy agency working on behalf of, you know, the Britain and British and Americans. But it's still, you know, this kind of constant kind of barrage of disinformation and kind of lies about the work of Bellingcat. But also on one side, it's just something we've got used to. And it's also nice that they yeah, care about yeah. us so much. You said um, a moment ago that, um, you know, you've been using the internet for, for 26 years and you'd got sort of got used to the way the sort of the 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 way people are on there and the sort of the the trolling and things like that. And one thing that sort of I found very inspiring about the the Bellingcat story was that it's sort of um I, I can't remember the exact term you use now, but sort of like you don't you don't accept it. Was it cyber miserableism yes, or something yeah. like that? Because I think of the last sort of definitely uh and I think particularly since like you know uh, the election of Trump and, and the, the way things have turned with social media. A lot of people sort of dismiss the internet. I mean, we all use it, but we sort of we assume it's full of untruths, and it's sort of we assume that nothing nothing good is going to come out of this space. And one of the things that I, I found really, as I say, inspiring was the fact that sort of Bellingcat's approach almost seems to kind of provide kind of a reset to that yeah and it's something i've been thinking a lot um about recently because um more and more i'm kind of involved with discussions with kind of policymakers, like at the european union and in the uk about um you know how we should respond to disinformation how we should respond to the negative Mm -hmm. aspects of the internet and i find it very worrying that most of the people who kind of really look at these issues and i do have to make the decisions on it aren't the kind of people who spend a lot of time on the internet and they're people who kind of read about the internet in reports rather than actually being part of it for, you know, the past three decades or so. Um, And I don't trust the conclusions they're drawing. And I think they don't recognize, they they don't understand some of the issues correctly. You know, these communities that form online around conspiracy theories, be it QAnon or MH17 or chemical weapons in Syria or the earth being flat, are basically forming for the same reasons because they have distrust in authority and they're seeking an alternative Mm -hmm. source of information and authority online. So they discover online communities that reinforce their beliefs or say stuff that, you know, sounds good to these people. And, you know, we take the example of coronavirus, for example, you might legitimately believe there's an issue with all these new vaccines that have popped up from nowhere and RNA and DNA and all this stuff that sounds a bit worrying. And um, so you say, okay, I can't trust the government because, you know, there's a whole reason range of reasons for people not to trust the government so you might not trust medical professionals for a number of reasons you may have had a bad experience with them um so you go you know google uh are vaccines dangerous and you jump down the first mm. rabbit hole and there you'll find a community that you know it'll be people saying well i have concerns about vaccines where who should i read and there'll be personalities there'll be bloggers there'll be doctors there'll be a whole range of people saying actually vaccines are quite bad now some of those people will be saying not only are they bad but they will definitely cause autism in children not only will they cause autism mm. but they will cause a whole range of diseases in fact any vaccination at any age will make you definitely sick within that community you'll say it won't only make you sick but it actually will um, insert a microchip that Bill Gates has put in the vaccine into you. Now, not everyone who starts that journey will get to the Bill Gates microchip stage, but some of them will. And because the internet brings you Mm. in contact with people very easily who have the same beliefs and will reinforce your beliefs, you don't have those beliefs challenged. And as you start getting drawn more and more into these online communities, and in the real world, you know, if you tell someone Bill Gates is putting microchips in vaccines, they might laugh at you or call you an idiot. Yet on the internet you'll find people who say you're a genius and you're the smartest person ever ever you become more and more de- kind of detached from mainstream discourse and you see yourself in opposition mm-hmm. to mainstream discourse so when we talk you know to policymakers and they're saying oh what about fact-checking websites and blah 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 what's the point of having a fact-checking website if the person who's meant to read it won't even believe you know thinks you're the devil basically they aren't going to trust mm-hmm. you they aren't going to read your fact-checking website they don't care so what do we start to do to stop those people getting to that point and i think in a sense what we have to do is engage with people at a younger age on how we can actually use the internet in a positive way not to turn everyone into mm-hmm. a fact-checker but to say these are tools that you can use to actually learn stuff and actually have a positive impact mm-hmm. i've been speaking a lot to uh, a, a group called uh, the student view who go into schools in the UK 
with 16 to 18 year olds and show them how to use investigative methodologies, things like um, freedom of information requests. There's one thing they did in Bradford where they got the students to do freedom of information requests for police chases um, that were happening Mm -hmm. in their local area because there seemed to be a lot of high-speed police chases. And they showed the students, here's how you can actually get the information to find out if it's actually more than the rest of the country. And they worked with local media, which is also a sector that's suffering, to uh, publish a story about this and actually ask questions to the police. They used fact-based evidence. And for someone who's a 16 to 18-year-olds, that's something that's very empowering. And the students were saying, I didn't even know what a freedom of information request is. Yeah, as a 16-year-old, you can do that as much as a 60-year-old can do it. And I think, mm-hmm. in a sense, this development technology, how information has become more freely available, all these changes has really broken down the barriers between kind of traditional investigative organizations, be they, you know, the intelligence services, journalists, you know, the police, or whoever it may be, and the public. And it allows people to discover stuff and be curious rather than being drawn into communities where they'll just have their worst kind of opinions reinforced and their kind of most paranoid Mm -hmm. ideas reinforced. You can instead say, okay, you can actually have a positive impact. And you'll often see conspiracy theories on big issues, on big global issues, because people feel disempowered in their local areas. And if we can use this kind of investigative work and get them involved, you build a community of people who in big ways and smalls can be part of stuff that can have a positive impact, both on their local communities, but also connect them to a community that's focused on issues internationally. I mean, lots of local communities being connected together and learning from each other on how they've resolved issues in their own communities could be a new way to actually approach a kind of kind of cyber citizenry, I guess, in one sense, that rather than us being drawn into conspiracy theories where we just end up screaming at each other on the internet and feeling smug about it because we've upset someone, we actually have a positive impact and actually say, okay, how do we fix these problems rather than saying how we just tear everything down because they're obviously evil over there and only me and my friends who know the earth is flat are right. The thing I'd like to to, to finish on, you um, a fascinating part later on in the book is about the sort of the... Potential challenges to to Bellingcat, so you know the use of sort of AI and deep fakes and things like that, and you present it in in a way of sort of you know obviously these things uh, these developments are challenges, but there are but you know you don't see them as in any way being sort of potentially fatal to Bellingcat's methods, and the Bellingcat will sort of adapt to to the new situation. But I'm curious, just before we finish, what do you see as potential? challenges or potential dangers to the the open source uh movement do you think it's something which will be sort of by its very nature resistant and sort of adaptable to to any sort of technological changes or political changes or are there things that you're sort of tuned into or or thinking of potential developments that could come along that could threaten the work that you do I think the thing is, it's such a wide amount of information. Unless you just get rid of the internet, you aren't going to lose access Mm -hmm. to information. I mean, the kind of information you might have access to might change and it might be, you know, in different shapes and, you know, change very rapidly. But, you know, as open source investigators, you know, we, we kind of observe these changes and we kind of just factor them into the work. And sometimes they open up opportunities rather than close them down. I mean, there's a lot of concerns about deep fakes, but for me, there's there's two sides to that. There's deep fakes as evidence and uh, kind of deep fakes as kind of just people getting mad about stuff on social media. And those are two very different <laughs> things. You know, you post a video of someone saying something and 10 million people watch it. But if you're actually going to use that as evidence of something, then there's a whole process of verification that will identify if it's a fake mm-hmm. or not. You know, checking for the original source of the video. Where has it been sh- shared? The kind of network of information that exists around a kind of object like that on the internet. But of course, by that time, you've got 10 million and really angry people because someone says something that's supposedly mm-hmm. terrible. So the question is then how do you deal with that? And I think what you might see in the future is more software being kind of developed that's kind of a part of social media platforms that's used to detect this kind of stuff before it's even shared. Especially, But I think that's going to be especially led by um, incidents where something terrible happens. Like we, the yeah. stuff that happened after January 12th, January 6th, with all the kind of QAnon conspiracy theorists being kicked off Twitter and, you know, Trump being kicked off social media platforms and all that only happened when people were literally storming the Capitol building in Washington. And if you had to wait for that, for every kind of, you know, proper decision to be made about these big issues, then, you know, we're going to be constantly taken to the edge of the, the problems. And then one day we're going to be taken to the edge and fall off and then, you know, wonder why we didn't do something before. 
Um, and I, I think that's kind of more of my concern at the moment, that rather than there being a specific technological challenge, we don't kind of rise up to what the possibilities are for this technology. Because if we do just sit back and kind of mm-hmm. hope for the best, then you're going to end up with the same situation we are in the moment. But if you're proactive and you actually say, how can we use this when, use this information? How can we use these methodologies in a useful way to kind of you know, enrich society rather than just, you know, go on social media platforms where we just scream at each other all the time. And I think we're going to miss a really big opportunity. Mm. Elliot, that is all we've got time for. Um, of course, We Are Bellingcat is available um, in bookshops worldwide, but on the Shakespeare and Company uh, website as well. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Elliot Higgins, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed in this episode are available in the show notes, alongside information about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating it wherever you listen. The intro and outro music is Mr Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.